This podcast is a collaboration between Costard and Touchstone Productions and the Dads from the Crypt Podcast. Hi, it's Alan, flying solo today. Can I be honest? I am truly grateful for you, our audience. Without you, we'd be nothing. But I'm also grateful for this podcast. You know, when I set out to do it, I wasn't looking to reinvent myself this way. I just wanted to get a damn story off my chest. But it turned out I wasn't the only person that made Bordello who wanted to tell its story. Even Gil, who didn't want to do the podcast at first because the story was so painful to tell, came around not only to doing it, but to embracing it. Because it's very, very funny, too. It's, it's outrageous, insane, and so very human. Telling the story of Bordello's tortured making was for virtually everyone who made the damn thing. What it comes down to is this. The process of making Bordello was far scarier than anything in Bordello. A lot has happened since I first dropped Season 1, Episode 1, and I wanted to give you all an update. The headline of headlines is that because of doing the podcast, which told the story of how a creative relationship ended, that very same creative relationship is now alive and well again. Doing the podcast reignited the relationship. Starters, except for this episode, Gil and I now host this podcast together. Uh, but there's also some other stuff. Now, I don't want to give too much away here, but among the projects, plural, that Gil and I are working on is a horror series that... How shall I put this? It isn't Tales from the Crypt. For starters, it's a serialized story perfect for streaming and binging. In Hollywood parlance, it's... Walking Dead meets Buffy the Vampire Slayer meets Sweeney Todd. We are having a blast writing it together. Better even than the old days. I'll leave it at this. Is it Tales from the Crypt? No. But I guarantee you, it will have the Crypt Keeper's spirit. Second piece of business. On December 17th, 2022, we will hold a table read for charity. Charity is the motion picture home, the MPTF, a great organization that takes care of film folk in need. Your donation receipt will be your ticket to the table read. And what are we reading? Dead Easy, the Tales from the Crypt feature film that never was. Long rumored, finally found. We have a copy of the script we took with us to New Orleans. Now, it's not finished. We were three weeks from starting production when everything stopped. In the life of a screenplay, three weeks means hundreds of drafts, revisions, or tweaks. Endless dialogue polishes. The version of Dead Easy will read would never have been the final version. We would have been rewriting Dead Easy all the way through post-production. Now, we're not going to read the whole script from fade in to fade out because, honestly, life's too short. The table read version of the script will be adapted from the last draft written. The script itself will be available shortly online to our subscribers. Hint, hint. Everything Gil and I have planned in the coming months for the podcast, I suggest subscribing to us. I'm excited when I look at what's coming. Could someone still make Dead Easy? Maybe. First, they'd have to untangle the rights. Not impossible, but as we all know, lawyers are expensive. As for the script itself, the flaws we hadn't solved yet, well, they're all solvable, and we would have solved them. Part of the fun for you, we hope, will be in getting to see a project that eh, got shit-canned before we had a chance to finish working out all its problems. If you're catching this podcast before the table read, go to our website for updates on how to make your kind donation to the MPTF and to get your ticket to the table read. Go to hownottomakeamovie.com, all separated by dash. Except the dot com, of course. 
You can also get info by visiting us at our Patreon page. If you're catching this after December 17th, you can still donate and listen to the table read all on your time, not ours. Hey, in the motion picture home, they'll still need your help. Just go to the very same places in order to donate. There's a third piece of business we wanted to bring up. A personal thank you to Entertainment Weekly's Clark Collis for his very kind interview and review of our podcast. Clark called us the best film podcast of 2022. Very high praise, and we are genuinely honored. Thank you, Clark, and Entertainment Weekly. I've had a long relationship with the publication. I still have the clipping from the first time they reviewed Tales from the Crypt. The thing that Clark appreciated, it was why he wanted to do the interview, was the podcast's honesty. He wanted to meet us to reassure himself that we weren't full of shit and that our storytelling was genuine. As I say in the first episode, the point of the exercise wasn't payback, it was catharsis. And catharsis, I'm here to tell you, is a very good thing. As Maria sings in The Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. Yeah, well, that's why I just write this stuff. Hi, I'm Alan Katz, and this is the How Not to Make a Movie Podcast, the making of Bordello of Blood. Now, why would anyone give a crap about the making of a mediocre little horror movie that came out a thousand years ago? Well, the answer is because, strangely, that movie still makes the rounds every Halloween. Like a zombie, it won't die. But then, Tales from the Crypt presents Bordello of Blood, its full title, was never even supposed to be in the first place. In a world where getting feature films made is so hard, where you have to really, really want to make a movie just to get it off the ground, we made a movie that literally nobody making it wanted to make. Not a one of us. Not for two seconds. Bordello came together perversely like a movie monster built of spare parts. A soulless, heartless, mindless movie monster. Actually, the story of how and why Bordello got made is quite relevant to the present. It's an object lesson in what happens when you do things for all the wrong reasons. Spoiler alert, nothing good. Just my humble opinion, I believe we're about to enter a time where doing things for the right reasons is going to become incredibly important. Here's something else I think is really important that we nail down up front. This story is going to hurt to tell. The making of Bordello was a kind of personal Waterloo for me. In the 30 years since, a lot has happened. Some extraordinary highs, like my two kids, and some pretty low lows that threatened to wipe out all the highs. The good news? Hey, I bounced. This atheist got born again. Not in a religious sense, in a life sense. Perspective is a wonderful thing, especially where storytelling is concerned. I have zero axes to grind in telling you this story. Hey, I'm here to confess my sins. I intend to say as honestly as I can what I contributed to this fiasco. And there was plenty. I will interview everyone who will still speak to me. Production team, the actors, our crew up in Vancouver. And my old creative partner, Gil Adler. Bordello's director, its co-writer, and producer. Helping me tell you this story, my producing partners on this podcast, is a Tales from the Crypt fan group called Dads from the Crypt. Thank you guys for your passion. By the time Bordello briefly hit theaters in 1994, Gil and I were no longer a team. That, too, is part of this story. How a dumb movie broke up a really good friendship. Look, as far as I'm concerned, 
No one else in this story has anything to be ashamed about. I mean that. No one. Except me. And Sylvester Stallone. We'll get there. In order to understand how we got to Bordello of Blood, you have to understand how we got to Tales from the Crypt. By we, I mean my creative partner at the time, Gil Adler and I. In addition to also producing Bordello with me, Gil directed the movie. Since he was directing, most of the daily producing chores fell to me. Creative relationships are exactly like marriages. They can be solid, respectful, and enduring, or wild, explosive, and totally bonkers. My relationship with Gil was very much the first kind. Gil wasn't just my creative partner, he was my best friend. By the time he and I made Bordello, we'd been working and playing together for nine years. We'd written screenplays together, co-written episodes of the Freddy's Nightmares TV series, which Gil produced and also directed, and together, we'd written and produced, resurrected really, what was HBO's biggest show at the time, Tales from the Crypt. A quick side note for perspective, I grew up a film buff. I loved movies, loved old movies, loved silent movies too. I loved the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields. I loved Casablanca and Gone with the Wind. I loved the whole Hollywood world. To have ended up in Hollywood getting to work with some of the very people whose movies and film work I loved, Move over, Lou Gehrig. I consider myself... I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. So, me in a nutshell. I grew up in an upper-middle-class Jewish suburb of Baltimore. I went to Vassar, where I majored in drama. A high school friend, Carol Yumkis, became an agent at William Morris in L.A. She suggested I write a screenplay, so I did. And in June 1985, at Carol's urging... Flew out to L.A. from New York for a week of meet and greet. I'd been to L.A. once before when I was 14. To me, a hardcore East Coaster and a burgeoning New Yorker, L.A. was the stupidest place on the planet. It was the land of the avocado head. But everyone in L.A. was so nice to me. They said lovely things about my screenplay. My agent, Carol, took me to a big Hollywood opening. St. Elmo's Fire. It was pretty intoxicating. Well, back in New York, it was 90 degrees and humid as hell. Here in L.A., there is no humidity. It was perfect. By my third day, I'd sold out completely. Welcome to Hollywood, kid. The land of the avocado head was now my home. Gil was among the very first producers I met that first week in L.A., and it was Gil's convincing enthusiasm plus his insistence that I'd be crazy this day in New York that closed the deal. Now, since our estrangement all those years ago, Gil and I, we've chatted occasionally. But doing this podcast, this was the first time we've really talked about our past together. We seem to hit it off in the room. You think? (laughs) Historically, if you look at it, you know, we met that day. And then I think we probably met almost every day thereafter for the next, I don't know, 10 years. Of all the things that I never expected to find in Los Angeles was a life, a career, and a best friend. Well, thanks for saying that. I I felt the same way. The first thing that we really started working on together was uh, Love and Linoleum was very much uh, your personal story. Yeah. Fictionalized. I I enjoyed that process. I mean, it it conjured up a lot of things that I hadn't thought about for years. But even so, it was, uh, I thought it was a fun experience doing it with you. Oh, oh, oh. 
you know, the, the only the only thing that I would have liked better than what's happened with it is that it had gotten made. <laughs> you came up as an accountant and you worked for Sid Finger doing all the bond books, right? Right. I'm, I'm remembering all this correctly. Right? Yeah. Um, I was a junior in college and at, I came at Syracuse town, at Syracuse and I came into town. I was taking education classes at NYU. I taught in a minority school where I was the smallest and whitest guy in the class in the room. Um, juniors and seniors in high school. And while I was doing that, uh, I wanted to make some money. So I go to NYU in the morning for classes. And then in the afternoon, I answered an ad in the New York Times. And it was this guy, Sid Finger. The, the summer before that, I answered an ad in the New York Times. And then I got a job at 20th Century Fox preparing statements for participants, those people who have sh shared in a movie or a TV show. So it was a very narrow arena of what my knowledge was in terms of the accounting. So when I called for this job, I didn't know who Sid Finger was. Sid Finger was a very big entertainment accountant. Yeah, he had, he had a monopoly on everything. He said, what kind of experience have you had? And I told him and he said, you were over 20th Century Fox preparing statements. When can you, when can you come? Can you come right now? Where are you right now? What Gil learned at the feet of movie accounting legend Sid Finger was the most basic rule of being a movie producer. If you have a dollar to make your movie, don't go spending a dollar one because you ain't got it. And the other axiom is you have a dollar to spend. Yeah. If you're a smart producer, you'll get a dollar fifteen worth of product. Yes, and if you can spend if, if you can spend ninety nine cents to get that dollar fifteen worth of product or ninety eight cents. Right. Now, prior to working for Sid, Sid Finger, had you ever thought about working in the film business? Oh yeah, I, I always wanted to be in the theater or the film business. I, I again, I answered an ad in the New York Times, and uh, I got a job. It was for the New York State Council on the Arts. And all of a sudden I interviewed and I got this job, which in those days was paying great money. And I became the director of grants for the New York State Council on the Arts. And the chairman was Kitty Carlisle Hart. Like a blind guy figuring out an elephant, Gil found his way into the movie business. And he ended up teaching a class in movie making with director Brian De Palma, who at that point in his career had Phantom of the Paradise, Obsession, Carrie, and The Fury under his belt. And this class that Gill and Brian ended up teaching, well, that turns into a surreptitiously made feature film called... Home Movies, starring Kirk Douglas, Vinnie Gardenia, Nancy Allen, who then became Mrs. De Palma for a while, Garrett Graham, and Keith Gordon. And that was my, that was, that's how I learned to make a movie. I, I lived in the production office in Sarah Lawrence campus. I slept on a cot, no air conditioning, which drove me crazy. But we made this movie. What took you out to Los Angeles? I had raised a little bit of money in, in Switzerland to develop script screenplays. And I hired off-Broadway, who later became Broadway and well-known writers, to write four screenplays, uh, none of which were good enough for me to get made, or I wasn't good enough to get them made. But they never happened. So I lost I lost one hundred thousand um, dollars. But while I was doing that, a friend of mine who uh, a guy named Mike DeLuise, who was working at uh, an ad agency that covered, you know, that placed our ads for Coca-Cola in the New York Times and all, all the New York papers. The Coca-Cola that Gil referred to wasn't the soft drink. It was a show. It's 1973. One of the first theater shows that Gill produced in New York was a riotous comedy which he found at the Edinburgh Theater Festival called El Grande de Coca-Cola. Among the young unknowns in Gill's cast are Ron Silver and Jeff Goldblum. Here's the interesting detail. The first show that I ever saw in New York was at the Mercer Arts Center in 1973. 
El Grande de Coca-Cola. Freaky, huh? So Gil's friend Mike DeLuise hooks Gil up with a guy named Andrew Sugarman, who's written a movie that he wants Gil to produce for him called Up the Pentagon. So it was supposed to be a comedy, and it was like the Carry On movies in English, the Carry On Nurse. It was Up the Pentagon, then it was going to be Up the Fire Department. We only did Up the Pentagon. And like within months, he called me up and I went back to New York. He called me up and he said, I want to do this other movie. It's uh, three times the budget. It's a million and a half. And I want you to produce it. And so I came back to Vancouver and we shot this movie called Certain Fury yeah. with Tatum O'Neill, Irene Cara and Peter Fonda. And uh, and that's that's how it started. When Gil and I went aboard Crypt, it was going into its third and for all intents and purposes, its final season. The producers had gone wildly over budget season two, so Joel fired everybody. But a strange thing happened over the course of season three after Gil and I took over. Tails and the Crypt Keeper, well, they came back to life. By the time Gil and I finished producing season three, HBO had ordered two more seasons. Chris Albrecht, who I knew when he was an agent at ICM, he became the head of uh, HBO. Uh, he had a series that was uh, being shot in uh, Savannah, Georgia, called uh, Vietnam War Stories. Mm-hmm. And they, he called me up on a Sunday and, and he says to me, um, I thought he was inviting me out for brunch. But actually, he was asking me to get on a plane to go to Savannah. I thought yeah. Savannah was a was a restaurant in, in Santa Monica. <laughs> if only. Yeah. So I went I went to Savannah. Great. Um, they Great didn't mimosas. know I was coming. He hadn't. So when I got there, it was a little awkward. Anyway, I took over the show. They had been shooting four days. They only had two days in the can. Uh, so so I, I, I shot we shot all six episodes and I brought it in and won Ace Awards. And, you know, Chris acknowledged that I had done a good job, not only with the money, but that it looked great. And so that that's what triggered when he got into a situation with the with the partners that they, you know, had gone way over budget, he asked them to write a check. And they said they wouldn't do it. And so he said, I'm going to cancel the show. And then the only way that it sort of came about was I got a call from Chris one day and he said to me, would you would you take that show over? And I said, well, I don't even know who I don't know. I don't know these guys. I don't know the partners. I don't know. You know, I, I don't really know anything about it. And so he sent me over, I think, the first six episodes to look yeah. at. Yeah. Uh, that were pretty good. Some of them were good. And well, and Donner's, you know, Bob, Donner's first episode is amazingly good. Donner's was good. Zemeckis was good. Walter Hills was good. And so I was interested. You know, I really thought, wow, this is. And, and these were big Hollywood directors and producers. So from that, you know, Chris said to me, you got to go and meet with Joel Silver and Dick Donner. So I went I went over to I went over to 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 meet them. And, you know, Dick stayed about 10 minutes and he said, yeah, you're OK, kid, you're OK. And he left and I was there with Joel and Joel, you know, I'm sitting in this chair, which in his office, you would sit very, very low. <laughs> he had a chair which was sort of lower than anything, almost on the floor. Anyway. He's 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 pacing in front of his desk and he's telling me, you know, you got to do this and it's got to look like a movie. It can't look like television. And, you know, you've got to shoot five pages a day every day. There's no no breaking down, no days off, you know, five days a week. And and I looked at him and I sort of jokingly said, what do we do after lunch? 
uh, which which didn't wasn't a good thing to have said because he got really pissed <laughs> off at me. So anyway, that's how we got that's how that's how we got to um, get tales from the crypt because then Joel said looked at me and he said, "All right, just make sure it looks like a movie." There was there was one more meeting, and that was yes. with Barry, Barry Josephson. Yeah, when we when we walked into that meeting at Silver Pictures and we sat in the boardroom. Yeah. I, the meeting, I think, was called for like three o'clock. And 3.15 comes by, 3.20, <laughs> And you are now, you are, your face is glued to your watch. You are the smoke. The smoke was coming out of my ears. Increasingly incredulous. Yeah. That, that, that this is how, that, that this could happen. 3.30, 3.40, And now you're, you're beginning to say, all right, this is it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get out of here. And, and you're kind of beginning to dare yourself to, come on, we're going to walk out. We're just going to walk out 3.50, 3.55. And Rand, really, at virtually the hour mark, literally, you, you, you've had it. This is right. a, almost an official hour of cooling <laughs> your heels at Silver Pictures. Right. No idea that this is, man, Get this is practice. And suddenly into the room, as we're literally about to walk out the door, literally, into the room strolls Barry Josephson. I must give you credit, however, for me making sure that we were there that long. Because I, I think after a half hour, I was ready to just storm out of there and call HBO and say, you know, these guys treat people like garbage and, you know, I'm not yeah. interested in this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that I was think never going to change. And I think you were the one who maybe, you know, injected the Kool-Aid into my arm to calm down, simmer down, and let's, let's, let's play this one out. Oh well, this was. So you, I think you were, this was. This was rarefied air. For me, yeah. I'm now. I'm. I'm on the Warner Brothers lot now. I had we had worked together on a couple of episodes of Freddy's Nightmares. Right. But that was not this. Now we're we're talking about a show at HBO. Yeah. And and you know yeah. Once Barry signs off, this is this is a happening deal. This is really the last step. It. it Right. And to me, I can taste, I can taste the promise. I can see it. I'm Moses. And I'm like, oh, oh screw what God says. I'm, I'm, right. I'm going there, motherfuckers. And well, I'm, I'm not exempt from being an asshole at times. You know, I'm, I, I can do but, that. But, but you, you know, were the one, you were the one who calmed me down and said, no, no, let's just, let's just stick this out. Let's see what happens. The saving grace, the thing that calmed me down, that, that kept my spirit going is they had the whole collection of all the tales from the crypt that, uh, Oh, the weird tales. Every every comic yeah. in the entire EC collection Both of was hard, there yeah, hardbound of yeah. was there. And and that was what kept me really because I would pull down all you know the, the tales from the crypt and I'd think, wow. Right. I mean, to me, you know, I read those comic books when I was a kid. I loved the EC world. I loved yeah. Bill Gaines's world. I this was close to to a kind of a dream. My first encounter with Tales from the Crypt was uh, a couple years, was a year before. Yeah, it was just after their first season. I, I was unemployed as, as usual. And I, uh, I, I got to be a cable ace judge. And, and we judged uh, uh, writing. We had, uh, I got like a dozen things we were going to judge for writing for the cable ace awards. And uh, it was a bunch of things that looked, okay, interesting. And the first three things we were going to watch were three episodes of Tales from the Crypt. The first three episodes, uh, Donner's, Zemeckis's and Walter Hills. And yeah. the 
the dozen or so writers who uh, unemployed writers who were there in the room, we all saw we were going to be watching it three episodes, tell us on the crypt and collectively at, we all said out loud, Oh, there's an hour and a half of, of, of time. You won't get back. We all anticipated crap. And from the moment Donner's episode began rolling, it was the first one that they showed us dig this cat. He's real gone. You could hear every writer's mind turning over going, get my fucking ass on this show. Right. This is brilliant. Yeah. And so to be standing in, in, in the boardroom at Silver Pictures right. <laughs> with this promised land in sight, my friend, you would have I would have been clutched to your ankle. Really, <laughs> I would have tackled you. There was. But that said, as the hour mark came, yes, you had me. It looked like we were being humiliated well, as we walked out. Barry Josephson walked in and the media. If I remember, went, if I remember correctly, um, you may have threatened clutching onto something even more important than my ankle if I tried to get out of the room. <laughs> entirely possible. Entirely possible. But, you know, uh, the, the, my recollection of, of the meeting with Barry was it lasted like five minutes and he looked yeah. at us and he went, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Good. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But was which, it, was, right? which, was how, which is why it was so ludicrous. It was so typical. It was really just, right. it was the pure politics of Barry having to sign off. But, but Barry yeah. is above all a political creature. Yeah, and he turned out to be a really good guy for the most part while yeah, while yeah, we were yeah. working on that show and thereafter. Yeah, 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 hey, you know, this town this town attracts a certain kind of person. You cannot be surprised when that kind of people are who really operates in this town and operates successfully. It's not it's not a business for 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 shy retiring types. Right. It it just it just ain't you're not going to do well if you yeah. come if you try to if you try to do this. It it requires a certain mindset and and hey if if barry is kind of running joel silver's company you got to figure barry's going to have an awful lot of joel in him yeah and that well, was and, the case and everyone fact, who worked for joel in actual fact i found barry really uh, very reasonable hmm. um and as we worked more and more together i i quite liked him i, I found him to be you know very helpful, you know, for getting politically what we needed to get when we needed yeah, to get yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think, you know, I, I thought he, I thought uh, ultimately, you know, our, our being pissed at him for being so tardy and keeping us waiting, you know, it, it turned out to be he was a good guy. Joel was, yeah. cr was brutal to Barry, brutal. But he, he, but he was brutal to he was brutal to everybody. Yeah, it's, it's know, I remember going in. I remember going into his office occasionally and thinking, you know, okay, what's this? You know, what, what, why did he call me? Only to get, you know, creamed from him and screamed at from him for something that I didn't even know what I was, what, what, how, did I, how am I related to this? What did I do yeah. on this? But that's, that, that was the relationship. I was, I was the ad along that, that, you know, that nobody wanted. And rightfully so, because I, I had no bona fides to do the job that I did on Crypt. It was really because they wanted you and, and, and I, was, I was your writing partner. But I had a secret weapon. That secret weapon was you. Oh. You know, because I felt like that we could do this. You know, I don't think I could do this alone. You know, I was never good at writing alone. I would look at the computer screen and I could think of, you know, maybe I should ba balance my checkbook today. I just everything, you know, that, but, when, but somehow working with you, it just all clicked for me. And so I really felt like we could really fix this. We could, we really know how to do this and we can do it not only economically, but creatively. Let's stop here a second to, to pat ourselves on the back. 
when we went aboard Tales from the Crypt, the intention was that third season was the last season they were going to do. That was the end of Tales from the Crypt. Right. And we reinvigorated not only the franchise, but the Crypt Keeper. Yeah. Which reinvigorated the franchise as a whole. And the fact that there were an order for three feature films, two of which got made, yeah. was simply because of what, re we, what you and I reinvented during, over the course of that first season that, that we took over Tales from the Crypt. I think one of the highlights of our career, certainly my career, was um, you know, when we wrote Yellow, uh, that Bob was going to direct and he got Kirk Douglas to do it. And, you know, the, meeting the, Kirk and being on the set every day with Bob. The problem was he didn't, he couldn't get Kirk initially because the initial script that, that the, the Thomas brothers wrote for yellow, right. you know, originally the way that I think everyone was planning it, yellow was going to be the last episode ever of tales from the crypt. It was going to be the big send off. Right. Right. Which when in the middle of the season, suddenly it was, it was decided that no, no, HBO is going to order a couple more seasons. It wasn't the end of the show. It was, it was kind of a celebration because it was going to go on. The problem was uh, uh, Zemeckis wanted to, to, he wanted to pay an homage to one of his favorite films when he was a, a film student, uh, Kubrick's Paths of Glory. Right. And that's why he wanted uh, Kirk Douglas. It's a World War I story and he wanted Kirk Douglas uh, the problem was the script that the Thomas brothers, you know, the, those two feature guys wrote, wrote was just abominable. It was awful. And, and Zemeckis knew he could not possibly get, uh, he couldn't even send it to, to uh, yeah. the agency because it would just suck so bad. So, you know, we took it under our wing. We fixed it. And you know, one or two drafts later, suddenly we had Kirk Douglas. Bob became a fan. And then watching Bob Zemeckis create World War I in Simi Valley, <laughs> and and he's and he's directing our words right you know bob's the is directing our words yeah you know we've kind of gone from one place to another in one giant leap yeah this is you know when you're on the inside it's funny one one tends to take certain things for granted after a while but having spent a lot of time now on the outside of the whole thing when i look back I, I think, dude, did you not realize what, right, what you were experiencing? Really? Yeah, no, it was special. It was special. I, oh my god, I think back on it often, and 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 try to remember some of the lessons I learned during that whole process, because that it was a very special time. It was a very special time working, the two of us working together. But it was also a very special time, how big it got, and how, you know, it just kept getting bigger and bigger. Not in terms uh, no, of money, but, not in terms of bigger budgets, but just mm -hmm. bigger, uh, the show became bigger. We suddenly, God, we, we were getting, we, we got reviewed when, uh, God, after our, when we did our, our second season on the show, the show's fourth, uh, I remember when we got, the reviews came out and the reviews were, were really positive. I think uh, th that second season, uh, we had Billy Friedkin directed for us, John right. Frankenheimer directed for us, and working with Billy was, was a hoot. And that was important because Billy would, would play a small part in the story that we were about to tell about, about Bordello of Blood. B Billy did a, a terrific episode about uh, the rock and roll world, about you know, kind of garage bands. Yeah. When we first suggested Billy, because it was our idea, and yeah. Joel, Joel went to you, he said, are you out of your fucking mind? Billy's crazy, he's gonna fucking kill you. He was like, well, who am I talking to here? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, well, what? No, that, 
what? Pretty good impression too. It was pretty accurate. Uh, so you know, but you you the first time that, that Billy came in, you sat him down and and you read you you explained the rules that you know, hey, this is well, it was, five it days was of actually, prep, five days to shoot. I don't care if you're Billy Friedkin, you're not getting a moment more. That's what you told him. Yeah. Well, well, people have said you know, um, I think before I met him, people had said to me, you better be careful because he can be pretty hot. And, you know, if you if you if you piss him off the wrong way, he might take a shot. at You, you mean a punch? Yeah. Well, he might just punch you in the nose. Yeah, I was like, yeah. what? So I met him at Hugo's for breakfast and we sat there and I was like, I had this whole thing in my head. Look, you know, I don't care who you are. Bob Zemeckis does them in five days. Dick Donner does them in five days. We do them in five days. Alan and I won't give you a script. That's a six day script and say it's your problem. We'll fix it until we all agree it's five days and we won't let you go ahead unless it's five, unless you agree it's five days. And if you think you're going to on day three or day four, you know, screw us for another half a day or day, I'll fire you. I'll fire you on the spot and I'll finish it. Alan will finish it. Zemeckis, will, someone will finish it. And I remember as I'm sitting there at Hugo's and I'm leaning further and further over the table across to him. And I'm, I'm real and I'm realizing I'm getting a little bit emotional about this and how heated and I'm going, holy shit, he he's going to take a shot at me. <laughs> he's going to get and he leans over meeting me. It's almost like a Seinfeld. He, he leans over almost my head's matching, almost touching. And he goes, do you have any idea who the fuck you're talking to? And I thought, oh, shit, here comes the punch <laughs> right in my face. I'm going to have a black eye. And then, and then I pulled back because I was afraid I was going to get hit. And then he pulled back and he, and he looks at me and he goes, I'm telling you right now, when we agree that it's five days, I will do it in five days. I will not do it any more time than that. As long as we agree up front. And I said, I wouldn't ask you to do anything other. And went back and Joel said to me, so how'd it go? Billy, Billy you got rid of him, right? And I went, no, he's doing it. You stupid motherfucker. You're an idiot. You, you're going you're gonna to pay for all the overages because there are going to be plenty of overages. And, you know, we became actually I became really good friends with Billy thereafter. And uh, he did it in five days, as he promised. And it was a great episode. And suddenly our, you know, our stock went up. And, and among the things that happened was that we got Universal suddenly ordered a couple of feature films. Right. The mandate is three different movies. Yeah, I, I think among the movies floating around, there was Demon Knight. There was uh, there was uh, something that uh, Quentin Tarantino's movie was also floating around. There was the thing that ultimately became Dead Easy was floating around, but but that was not anywhere near ready. And the next thing you know, right. suddenly the decision was made to do Demon Knight as the first movie. Right. Ernest did a fantastic job. I, I do remember. I, I, there is a funny story, though. I think we should tell. Um, we're, we're in, I think we're at the Van Nuys airport and we're all in trailers and you and I have our, our, have our trailer I remember and we're having trailer. a, and we're having a meeting with the art department and they look at us and they go, they're over budget. And I blew up. I smacked my hands down on the desk. I thought I broke my hand and I just started screaming like Joel and I walked out. I walked out of my own trailer. I was so pissed off. And I, I think I remember, I think it was you who came after me and he said, you, are you okay? Are you okay? You know? And I, and I was like, it was a few blocks away. And I said, yeah, I'm fine. Why? 
He goes, because everyone, everyone's back in your office. They can't believe you just walked out of your own meeting and you blew up like that. And they're all worried about this. I remember this. I remember this. And I remember looking at you and saying, don't you recognize good acting or something to that effect? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> no, we had great people on, on Tales. We had such a great crew. We had, you know, our, our crew, if you remember, our crew changed every year by maybe 2% or 3% only because someone got a, a job on a big movie. But yeah. our crew never moved anywhere because we were very fair with them. We treated them well. And they, in turn, treated us well. They, they, did, they did a great job. I mean, whether it was, you know, uh, um, Charlie Bardinelli or and, oh, and sure. Uh, sure. Um, Bellissimo, Tommy Bellissimo on, on mechanical effects, or it was uh, Kevin Yeager or Todd Masters um, or, or later K&B. On, on makeup effects, yeah. Um, Greg Melton. I mean, Greg Melton's job was insane because the world changed every five days. Reinvent the wheel every week. Yeah. yeah so no, we had, we was... had really special people. We really had special people that were very dedicated. Our management, F.A. Miller, was a really special guy. I learned an awful lot from F.A. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, he's no longer with us. I mean, we really, we really had special people. So we make Demon Knight. It gets good reviews. Makes just enough money that Universal greenlights Crypt movie number two. Now remember, the mandate was three different movies. Demon Knight was a fun monster movie. We wanted film number two to be completely different. And had we made it, Dead Easy would have been a very different movie from Demon Knight. It would have been different from anything Gil and I had made before. We loved the challenge. Our whole crew did. And we were utterly convinced that not only were Gil and I and the executive producers and the creative team all on the same page, we thought our studio, Universal, was too. Not only did we want to do it, everybody wanted us to do it to the point where we took five, I think five people to New Orleans to scout locations yeah. with the art department, with a DP, yeah. you, me, um, maybe one other person after the DP and the art department. And we were looking and scouting locations when the phone call came and the message was, stop looking at locations, don't spend any more money, come back home. Some quick Hollywood history. At about this time, when all this was happening, Steven Spielberg, David Geffen, and Jeffrey Katzenberg formed a new company called DreamWorks. One of the first things DreamWorks did was begin making deals. Universal was terrified that another of its superstars, Bob Zemeckis, one of our executive producers, would leave Universal for DreamWorks because Spielberg was Bob's mentor. Universal, desperate to keep Bob in their stable, asked Bob what they could do to make him happy. Bob is an amazing collaborator, maybe the best ever, and he's an incredibly loyal man. He's always been good to his first writing partner, Bob Gale. Bob Z told Universal that one way they could keep him was by buying the first student script the two Bobs wrote while at USC Film School, Bordello of Blood. Universal agreed. They bought that script for half a million dollars and Bob stayed at Universal. Ah, but Universal resented spending half a million dollars on a script that was just going to go to waste. So they turned to us. We, we didn't know as we flew back what the bad news was going to be. No, it didn't look good. Something was up in the air. We didn't realize yeah. it was going to be us. Universal dropped the bomb. Dead easy was dead. But hey, look on the bright side, said Universal. Sure, you won't be making a, the movie you all wanted to make that you've been working on for six months. 
Instead, you're going to make the student movie called Bordello of Blood. Oh, and by the way, the meter hasn't stopped running. You still start formal prep in three weeks. That's formal prep for a $12 million feature film whose script we'd only just been handed. Trust me when I tell you, that is how not to make a movie. Next time, as we lick our wounds over Dead Easy, we start down the Bordello Highway. And it's absolutely the highway to hell. Part two, how not to cast a movie. Anyone know where the craft services table is around here? The How Not to Make a Movie podcast is executive produced by me, Alan Katz, and by Jason Stein. Our artwork was done by the amazing Jody Webster, and Jason Jody, along with Mando, are all the hosts of the fun and informative Dads from the Crypt podcast. Follow them for what my old pal, the Crypt Keeper, would have called terrible Crypt content. Thank you.